The text before us is found in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. This is one of the texts that has those verses that we know quite well. Jeremiah 29 from verse 4 to verse 14. And as we continue with our brief series on divine providence, we're going to be looking at divine providence toward a disobedient people. And uh, this is an interesting topic and slant to this whole series, divine providence toward a disobedient people. Does God provide and does God take care of his people even while they are disobedient? And this text shows us what happens in this case. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and father sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. So they may give birth to sons and daughters and grow in numbers there and do not decrease Seek the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its prosperity will be your prosperity. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets who are in your midst or your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to their interpretations of your dreams which you dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search, rather you search for me with all your heart. I will let myself be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Father, we bless you and we praise you. This afternoon, for your goodness, your mercy, and your kindness towards us, I pray that you would give us insight, that you would give us understanding as we meditate on these verses, and that we would know, indeed, what kind of a God you are. You are far more different than we could ever imagine. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we started to see that this doctrine, the doctrine of divine providence, um, teaches us that God takes care of his creation, takes care of his people, takes care of all of that which we consider the universe. And if God were not sovereign, there would be no providence. There would be only chance and randomness. That God is sovereign simply means that we do not um, believe in open theism. That is that God um, has many possibilities before him 
as creator. There is only one possibility, and it's his will. <laughs> there is not multiple wills of God. It's one divine will. And because of that, that, that God is sovereign, that God rules, that he reigns, therefore we have the outworkings of that sovereignty in providence. We know that God has never ceased from carrying out his perfect will in um, this world throughout the ages. He tenderly and wisely cares for his creation, showering his goodness on both the just and on the unjust. So the doctrine of divine providence, as I hit last week, clashes with contemporary world views. And there are several world views. We're not going to be looking at that, those world views, but there are several of them. And this doctrine of divine providence clashes with these worldviews because it shows that God is not only the creator, but that he is intimately involved with whatever takes place in this world. Um, he works within this creation and manages everything according to his counsel and perfect will. So today we're going to be looking at this topic and consider it in particular, as we focus on God's providence towards a disobedient people. Because oftentimes we think God provides, God takes care of the obedient, the faithful, those who walk in his ways. But what happens when we are disobedient? What happens when we're stubborn and don't follow God's ways? Well, this passage shows us. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes that one of the main purposes God gave us the Old Testament to the church is this, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, these things happened to Israel. I put that in parentheses because it's not in the original text, but it's implied. As an example, that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, Israel is an example, or rather, a backdrop, if you would, and God deals with this nation who are his people, and as he deals with them, we learn, we are instructed. We, Israel is the, um, if you would, is the uh, school in which God teaches and God works so that we, the church, can look at God's dealings with Israel and understand God's ways. Everything that happened to the people of Israel was for our benefit. So the text that we just read are words that the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Judah. Jeremiah was not well liked in his day. In fact, he was um, often in danger, thrown in a pit. Uh, they sought to stone him, kill him in many ways, whatever, because he would anger the people of God with his words. The leaders were corrupt, and the people and the leaders together were um, in apostasy, far away from God. Jeremiah lived in 7th century BC, and he prophesied under five kings. The first king is well known, Josiah. Then you have other kings, right up to Zedekiah. They were lesser known kings. They didn't walk with God, but Josiah did. And in the time of Josiah, Jeremiah would prophesy because already there was this shifting this defecting from God. And as we look at this text today, we're going to consider how God was providential towards his own people who were outright disobedient. 
So we're going to look at first at Judah's defiance and just get an idea of how defiant and disobedient they were. By the time Jeremiah the prophet comes on the scene, God's people had abandoned God, had abandoned his ways, but they kept the charade. They kept going to the temple. So in their own homes, they were worshiping other gods. The wives were cooking uh, cakes and whatnot to the gods of the moon and the sun and the stars and so forth. The people themselves had no regard for God's ways or God's laws, but they kept the charade by continuing to go to the temple because they felt that the temple protected them, right? The temple represented where God's presence was. We can continue being disobedient, and the temple is here, and we'll be okay. And in, in comes prophet Jeremiah, and uh, he's calling the people of Judah to repent, right? Uh, you remember that Judah was one of the tribes. There are a whole bunch of other tribes, another 11 of them, by the way, besides the Levites. And that part of Israel, the northern part of Israel, where all these tribes belonged to, had now amalgamated with the pagans and had become totally pagan. So Judah's left. That's where the temple was. And so Israel had reduced itself to one tribe. And that one tribe now, they were unfaithful. They were acting wickedly. And so Jeremiah is telling them, repent, because if you don't, God is not going to endure this anymore. You've lived in hypocrisy. You've walked in disobedience. God's going to bring in the Babylonians and just wipe everything, allow them to wipe everything away. He's going to take the best of Judah, the best young man, the best young woman, the, uh, all the gold, all the items in the temple, and, run, and eventually destroy the temple itself. And they didn't believe him. They just didn't believe him. They said, no, nah, it's impossible. That's not going to happen. Look at our fortified walls. Look at our history. We're a strong nation. We've got a wonderful army. We're up to par with all the other countries. We have a king. Everything is going to be okay. And they just didn't believe Jeremiah. They were defiant in their sin. And uh, what was going on? What was happening? God had led this country uh, the brother nation into this land, and they now were a country. They were respected, and they had everything that God had promised them, but they had turned their hearts against God. They had been promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would receive a land, that they would be blessed by God, and that they would be the head and not the tail if they continued in obedience. That he was never going to abandon them, and that they would be his people and he would be their God. So they entered into this covenant. That's why the Old Testament is called that. Testament means covenant, the old covenant. And God said, this is our covenant. You're going to obey and I'll just keep blessing you. And bless you and bless you. Of course, they broke the covenant immediately. And they kept breaking the covenant and it became progressively worse. Far worse than the previous people who lived in that land. So I'll name all the Amor Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all the other seven nations mentioned that occupy that land that were pushed out, driven out by God using Israel, they had become worse than them, far worse. And if you read by the time um, the last kings of Judah, you'll see that there was the practice of sodomy in the temple itself. It was bad, very bad. Sacrificing their own children to Molech. 
It was awful. It had become worse. Look at Jeremiah 7, verse 4 to 11. Do not trust in deceptive words, the prophet is saying. Saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So they would pride themselves in their temple because no other country had a temple like the temple that Solomon had built. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a person and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor follow other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, this is God's people, all right, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, in other words, giving oaths and falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, follow other gods that you have not known, and then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're okay, we're saved, so that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's, a, it's just remarkable how God is so patient and merciful with his people. We get a snapshot of the condition Judah was in by the time Jeremiah was speaking to the people. There was, this is nothing less than apostasy, full apostasy. And Judah has abandoned God, has abandoned his words, has abandoned the law, which is the Torah, has abandoned everything that God has given them, and just going through, like I said, the charades. And God had determined that enough was enough. He had warned them multiple times. Think about it. Hundreds of years have passed, reaching and culminating to this point. And God had shown them what happened to the northern kingdoms, Israel, and said, look at them. They've now amalgamated. There's no more country. You're the only one left. Will you repent? Will you come down from your high horse thinking that you are saved because of the temple and because of the fortified walls and because of your king and because of everything, your mighty army? And God has said, that's enough. Look at Jeremiah 17. The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus or a pen, an iron pen. Why? That's the way they would engrave in marble. With a diamond point, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. So their hearts were hardened to God and yet open to sin. And on the horns of their altars, this means the altars on which they were sacrificing to their different gods. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars, and their ashram. Think about it. Passionate we are about our children, aren't we? And we think about them. Okay, how can we take care of them? How, we, how can we provide the best schooling? How can we make sure that they have a good future that's in store for them? We instruct them. We raise them up well. We're passionate about our children. These people, God's people, had become passionate about their God's as much as they were passionate about their own children. It doesn't make any sense. These gods had done nothing for them. Nothing. And yet these were the gods that they were following 
instead of their God. And God says that their sin is written with an iron stillus on their hearts. It was engraved. There was, it wasn't just something that you could have erased. It was engraved. They were passionate and in love with their sin. So they weren't just falling into sin. Uh, I'm saying this because last week someone approached me and asked me a question about this very point. He said, how can God, uh, or rather, how can God's providence work in our lives while we're sinning? When Christians sin, when Christians fall, is God's providence at work? Well, yes, it is. But I'm showing you the extreme case so that you can understand the case for Christians. The extreme case is what we see here with Judah. Judah was not falling into sin. Judah was swimming in sin. Or as Justin Peters said on one instance, uh, here you have not only them swimming in sin, but they had their scuba gear so they can continue to stay in sin. Right? They enjoyed sin. They willingly participated in wicked acts and enjoyed staying there. They had no place for coming out of sin. There was no desire. A Christian is someone who has been reborn and delights in doing God's will. He doesn't delight in sinning. In fact, when he sins, he feels awful. When he falls into sin, there is remorse, there is a feeling of uneasiness, there is conviction, the Word of God speaks to him and he feels convicted. He comes to the gatherings, he feels convicted, and he wants to be cleansed of it. If he struggles with sin, there's still the same thing. There isn't a delight. As you've dealt with this verse in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we know that no one who has been born of God sins, continues to sin, enjoys sin, delights in it. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Who was born of God? Well, that means it's Christ. Christ was born of God on this earth, came as the God-man, and he keeps his beloved. All those that have been born of the Spirit are kept by the beloved, as we're reminded in John chapter 10, where no one, we're told, can snatch a believer from the hand of Christ and from the hand of the Father. This was not the case for Judah. Judah reveled in sin. There was open defiance, rebellion, which was hardcore. They weren't simply falling in sin. They were swimming it. And their delight was to disobey. That's how bad it was, very bad. And so here's God sending prophets, speaking to them. But while the prophet was speaking, there were others who were speaking as well. And these others were enabling God's people to continue in their sin. So we have now the deceivers. In verses 8 and 9, we read, For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst of you or your diviners deceive you. They do not, and do not listen, rather, to their interpretation of your dreams which you dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So, God's people were dreaming. Uh, I'm not sure 
what they were dreaming, we're not told. And often I say that in Scripture we have many godless men who have dreamt, and they were dreams that came from God. You have Pharaoh who dreamt. You have Ahimelech who dreamt. You have Nebuchadnezzar who dreamt. And these dreams were of God. So often I say, if you dream something that's of God, do not assume that God is with you. And do not assume that God is um, favoring you. It could be that you're in danger. Amalek, in fact, God told him, you're a dead man. That's what he told him. So when a dream comes, it's not necessarily it means that, that, that you are walking with God. But there are people who have dreamt from God's people themselves and um, who have received a dream. And through that dream, they were led to God. They, were, they repented of their sin. These individuals were dreaming, and they would go to these prophets and diviners. A diviner is someone who claims to see the future. A prophet would prophesy on God's behalf. And these prophets, so the diviner was not working with God. So they were, you can call them like today's uh, psychics, if you want. A prophet was different. A prophet was someone who claimed to be speaking on God's behalf. And so these prophets were telling the people that uh, everything was going to be fine in their lives. God is going to bless you. He's going to prosper your business. You're going to have more children. You're going to get a bigger home. You're going to get more camels in your, in your barn. You're going to be, you just will have a wonderful life ahead of you. And that's what they were telling them constantly. And, and, and the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and says, they're deceivers. That's all they are. And who were these false teachers? Who were these diviners and, and, and deceivers in general? Jeremiah 6, verse 13, for from the least of them to the greatest of them. So the least were the diviners. They were people, psychics, if you would, okay? They weren't anyone special. And to the greatest of them, these were the priests, the prophets, Everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. In other words, these prophets, these diviners, were telling them, everything is going to be okay. You know, just smile and be happy. <laughs> everything is going to be okay. Everything is, really, everything is, ça va aller bien, you know? They're just telling this over and over, constantly telling the people of God. And this did what? It enabled them to continue in their sin. It did not bring them to repent. And here we see these five traits of these false teachers. First, they served, they spoke for money. Everyone is greedy for gain. Secondly, they chose to not speak the truth. They speak falsely, perverse things. So most likely they flattered, they avoided God's word altogether. They spoke authoritatively. They spoke on God's behalf. Think about it. I come with a word from God for you. You hear a lot of that. Unfortunately, because of the internet, these claims that they speak on God's behalf have multiplied to the infinite. It's just sad to see how many say lies on God's behalf. They spoke authoritatively. 
They were indifferent towards sin. Look at the people who speak on God's behalf. They never mention sin. Never. They never say there's something wrong. Church, there's something that we have to address here. People of God, there is sin in the camp. No, no. I have a word from you. We're going to be a great nation. We're going to prosper and all that kind of stuff. Over and over. Indifferent towards sin. They healed the brokenness of my people superficially. God's people were broken. They were messed up. And these prophets would come in and just put a band-aid when they had cancer. And fifthly, they gave false hope. They would say, peace, peace. In other words, there won't be any war. Who's going to invade Judah? Who's going to come into these, into, within these strong walls? Jerusalem is protected. Peace, peace. And God says, but there is no peace. There's no peace. And since the inception of the church, God's people have always had to deal with false teachers, constantly. And look at Acts 20. Paul calls for the elders of Miletus, and the, uh, the elders of Ephesus, rather, and they meet at Miletus, and he speaks to them. And uh, the two verses I want to draw your attention to are verses 28 to, well, 30. Let's read three verses. Acts 20, verse 28 to 30. Be on guard for yourselves. And he's speaking to the elders. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All right? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know. Paul speaks here affirmatively. He is sure of this. Now, had I known this truth at that time, it would have broken my heart. I would have probably been in distress for days, maybe months. But look at what he says. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They don't love God's people, these wolves. They dress like shepherds. They sound like shepherds, but they're wolves, ravenous wolves. He goes on, and from among your own selves. So he's speaking to a group of elders. From among this number of elders will arise others who will speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That must have been heartbreaking for Paul even to say this. Now we understand, for example, false prophets in the Old Testament. But why would there be false prophets again in the new? Why would there be not only wolves who would infiltrate the church, but even amongst the elders, amongst the men who were serving the church, would there be men who would not spare the flock and seek a following by speaking perverse things or false teaching? Why would they do it? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow these false teachers to multiply within his church. How do you um, justify that when the Lord is saying, on the other hand, I am building my church. Yes, Lord, you are, but they're pulling the rug from under your feet. Why would you allow this? That's what it looks like, but God is sovereign. See, if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, this whole thing called church makes no sense. And we would quickly be discouraged and just throw in the towel. We need to believe on one hand that God is sovereign, that nothing takes him by surprise. And then we need to believe on the other hand that God is working providentially in his church. So that while there are false prophets and false teachers, God is still taking care of those 
who are his own. As Paul writes to Timothy, God knows who are his. That's the point. The tares and the wheat grow together. Many claim to be Christians, many claim to be children of God, but they've never known God. Never at all. But God allows this condition of uh, both growing together and allows the wolves to come in and allows from the church, with, from within its ranks, for false teachers to rise up. He allows all of this. We're much more careful and much more controlling. You know, I've often said to the Lord, I enjoy my garden. Lord, I have an easier time understanding the garden. I have a very hard time understanding church. Because in the garden, when a plant is sick, I just uproot it. I don't let that plant infect the other plants. If a plant has a part of it that can't be salvaged, I take off. I prune the part that's not good. I keep the garden as intact as I could. I am not 100% successful by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what I'm doing. But God works in mysterious ways in calling out a people and allowing all the stuff that goes on within what is called Christendom. In the church, in the worldwide church, there is a lot that doesn't belong to God. But in this mess, and we would call it mess, there is a people that belong to him. And they're being refined. And they're being pruned by God. And they belong to him. And they're his. It's sobering to even think this, to allow this. But this is how God providentially works in his church. God in his wisdom allows these false teachers to infiltrate, to multiply, to spread their lies. But he keeps his own. He doesn't let them fall into error. His providence is seen in the Old Testament and the times of, of Jeremiah by the fact that God warns his people, by the fact that God sends prophets, and the fact that he mercifully keeps them alive. He could have crushed them. They had backfired as a nation, as a people. They had gone off the tracks. And God could have said, that's enough. I'm going to start anew. I'm going to crush them. God doesn't do that. He is merciful with rebellious Judah as he is merciful with us today. He sends prophets according to his hearts, his heart rather, and he will speak to us the truth that we need and they warn us that we may not walk in our stubbornness. So while it is true that God judges his people, it is true that he doesn't abandon them. He doesn't abandon his people. He patiently warns them, speaks to them, and he doesn't give up on them. This is the God that we see clearly manifested in the Old Testament. This is his providence at work. Now look at the directives that God gives his people. Now keep in mind that while this is happening, some have been already removed and they're brought into exile. The ones who stayed behind were still stubborn, and believe that they could spare themselves and that they would not end up as captives in Babylon. So God tells those who have been removed, who are now captives, he says, this is what the Lord of armies says, the God of Israel says to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, he tells them. Build houses. 
live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and father sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may give birth to sons and daughters. Grow in numbers there and do not decrease. Seek the prosperity of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its prosperity will be your prosperity. Now these words were spoken to a people who, would, who are, some were already, and others would be forcibly removed from Judah and brought as slaves in a captive land, Babylon. Now imagine yourself, you're in Babylon, you're one of these who's um, seen your house burnt down, you've seen your loved ones being slaughtered, you've seen your temple ransacked, and all the precious items were removed, and things are dire, they're just bleak. And you're now in Babylon, and, and so you say, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? Am I supposed to, are, we, are you going to raise up a number of people from our midst that are going to fight this people, and are we going to save ourselves, deliver ourselves? And God says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to build homes, you're going to plant gardens, you're going to have your kids get married, you're going to have grandkids, you're going to continue this way, and you're going to pray for the city, and you're going to pray for its leaders, and... You are going to pray for its prosperity. That made no sense at all. You mean I'm going to pray for the leaders that just invaded my land, destroyed everything, and have brought me here as a slave? I'm going to pray for my masters? I'm going to pray for these who have, are my enemies? They've hurt me. They've hurt my family. They've hurt my country. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to support them. That's what God is saying. Now, why would he ask something like this from them? Because he's basically saying that I'm not the God that you think I am. I am not a God who delights in vengeance. Not a God who delights in making people pay. Otherwise, I would have made them pay a long time ago. I would have abolished the earth, the earth and all of it, all of mankind altogether. That is not who I am. I want you to know who I am. You see, the God of the Old Testament is not like the, is not like the God that we make him make them out to be. You've heard people who said we need to unhinge the Old Testament from the New. That is just ludicrous. It's the same God. The God of the Old is merciful as the God of the New. The God of the Old loves justice as the God of the New. The God of the Old is righteous as the God. There is no difference between the God of the Old that comes across the Scriptures as from the God of the New that comes across from Scriptures. Look at what Jesus says. And when he speaks to the people of his day. But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are abusive to you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. The same line of thinking. I remember listening to Muhammad Ali and why he became, was called Cassius Clay at one time, and why he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and why he abandoned Christianity. And he simply put it down to this. I was tired of turning the other cheek. That's the reason why. I'm not going to become that man. I'm not turning my other cheek. I am going to make them pay. This is what Many understand from 
the Islam religion, which is a religion of justice. Others will pay. Others will pay. Christianity moves along a different set of tracks altogether. Christianity says, he paid on the cross, our Savior paid, we love our enemies. We live to please our God. We will treat our enemies differently. Those who mistreat us, those who do us wrong, those who want to hurt us, we are not to hurt them back. We are not to pay them back in kind. And God is saying this very specifically to his people. I will preserve you, leave vengeance in my hands. Now, eventually Babylon did pay, but it was God's doing. It was not because the people, or God's people, the Jews, who were living in Babylon and eventually became the medial Persian Empire, it's not because they had an insurrection towards the Babylonians or towards their captors. There was no such thing. They just amalgamated, they lived amongst them, and they multiplied. And God used them as a witness. And there were many who came to the, uh, to the light because by the time Christianity comes around, by the time Jesus is born, we see that when the gospel is preached, there were many proselytes coming from all over the Roman Empire to worship in Jerusalem. Why were there proselytes? Because the Jews in their midst, God used them to prepare their hearts so that eventually they would turn to Christ. This was God's doing. God's plan is completely different from what we would expect. Look at uh, Peter's words to the slaves in his day who were complaining, I'm a Christian, but why do I have to live like this? And Peter asks, writes to them, servants, be subject to your masters. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. Those who are unreasonable. You have an unreasonable boss. We have an unreasonable government. That's right. In some, in some other demands. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person endures grief when suffering unjustly. Now, we're not suffering unjustly in this country as compared to other countries, but there are many Christians that are suffering unjustly. How are they to respond? Well, God tells them, endure grief and be subject. For what credit is there if when you, are, when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently, then this finds favor with God. You are enduring under a harsh taskmaster, someone who's mistreating you, endure with grace. Don't rebel. Peter's words are very similar to Jeremiah's words. He is speaking to believers who are slaves, who have no rights. And these slaves are wanting rights. They want some kind of change in their life. But there is no change. Say, so just submit, endure the grief. God will honor you. And this is the message that Muhammad Ali rejected. Now, of course, he was never a true believer, but the very message of the gospel is something that he rejected because we want to fight back. That's why movies who have these men and women who are heroes and fight injustice and crush the opponent, those are the movies that we find attractive because they resonate with us. We find ourselves on the receiving end of injustice. We want someone to fight for us. And we're saying, you're taking too much time, Lord. We want a hero today. That's why the world is ripe 
for the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist will give them exactly what they want. All these movies are leading up to this very moment when people will finally acknowledge someone as their hero. The wrong hero. He will deceive them. He's a false prophet. He's the Antichrist. And people are falling for this false message. Instead of listening to the truth, of just, trust me, leave vengeance in my hands, I will take care of you while you go through these unsettling times. And the people of Judah were in Babylon and they were slaves and they wanted to fight back. No one wants to be a slave. No one wants to submit to a a harsh and unreasonable ruler. But they were told to comply and to pray for the success of their leaders. And that's the same mess- that is the same message that we have as Christians today. Now, where is God's providence in all of this? Up to now, we see the people are defiant and disobedient. We see they're deceivers, and now we see that the directives are hard to swallow. Why is God asking this? Why doesn't God just intervene? He's our God. He's all-powerful. That's what he's always told us. Why does God not intervene? Because there is a measure of punishment that the people of Judah had to receive so God could work out his perfect plan. And we're going to see this now. Look at the verses in uh, verses 10 and 11 of the original passage. And here we see Judah's deliverance. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Oh, those of us who are believers and I've been reading God's word. We've read this verse multiple times. Verse 11. 29-11, I've seen it on walls. I've seen it in the most unusual places. You go to a washroom sometimes and you see this verse in a washroom. I'm not sure why that verse should be in a washroom. I don't understand. That verse is plastered everywhere. It's on the internet. People share it one with another. It's been quoted Thousands and thousands of times. This is a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. But what uh, many do not take into consideration, and perhaps you today, finally, it's finally dawning on you, that this verse was not uttered by God to a, a faithful people, to an obedient people. See, had God said these words, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you peace, to the people in the days of Moses, that would have made sense. You know, here's, this is the law, this is the Torah. We enter into a covenant agreement, right? I know the plans that I have for you. If you follow my covenant, I will prosper you. That makes sense. So many times when you read this verse, we read it in this way. Okay, Lord, help me to obey you because I want you to prosper me. <laughs> right? I want you to give me peace. Oh, help me to follow your ways. That's not what, how it's given. The way this verse was given was to a people who were disobedient. They were in Babylon because of their disobedience. And furthermore, they believe that God had abandoned them. So if you feel abandoned today, this is the verse you need to hear. 
If you are disobedient, this is the verse you need to hear. If you're not walking with God, this is the verse you need to hear. This is the verse. Powerful, isn't it? That is the merciful God that speaks to us. You see, God should have rightly said these words. You know the hundreds of years you've disobeyed me, worshiping other gods, killing the men I've sent you, the prophets that I've sent you, disobeying me and doing your own thing. This is what I'm going to do. I have plans to make you pay for that. I'm going to make you suffer. And you are going to suffer for all the wickedness you've committed throughout these years. Shouldn't God have said that? And everyone would have said, yes. And Muslims would have looked at that and said, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. You sin, you pay. You sin, you pay. But our God is different, isn't he? Now, he doesn't want them to continue sinning. He doesn't want them to continue being disobedient. He doesn't want them to continue in waywardness and worshiping other idols. So what does he do? He takes them, removes them from the protection and their self-confidence, their false sense of security that they were enjoying while in Judah, removes them, plants them in a different land, makes them feel that they have the disadvantage, which they clearly do, because they're surrounded by pagans and surrounded by false gods. They are now intimidated, and now they listen. Because God clearly says this, then you will what? Seek me. Then I will be found by you. What is God doing all this? Not to make them pay, but to bring about a change, a disposition of acceptance towards God. Finally, their compass is pointing north. Finally, they're humbling themselves before this mighty and great God. And they're beginning to understand, wow, God is merciful. I deserve to die. We should have been completely wiped out, but God is not doing that with us. It's not. Providentially, he takes care of his people while they are disobedient. Providing circumstances and conditions so that they will change. That's the God we serve. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. See, we often think when we sin, God is angry now. Ooh, is he ever angry. And if we fall into sin, oh my goodness, oh, I'm so sorry. And then we, we have these feelings of guilt and we're, we're, our thoughts Thoughts that God is upset. God is going to make me pay. I'm going to lose my job. Maybe my, my, my wife is going to get cancer. My child, who knows, you know, who knows what's going to happen to my family? <laughs> Why do we have these thoughts? Why do we think this way? Because the enemy sows his lies. And we believe the lies of the enemy. God wants to change us. God wants to make us holy. And God creates circumstances and situations that will bring his people from being immature and selfish and inward-looking to being mature, selfless, and upward-looking. That's God's way. This is how God 
providentially works in a disobedient people that belong to him. It's remarkable. Think about the history of the Jews. Have you ever spoken to someone and said, can you explain me something? Why, you're, why you keep surviving? Just ask them that question. Why do you keep surviving as a race, as a people? I mean, you're insignificant. You're not warriors. You're not. We understand why, you know, Rome should have survived. It didn't. Greeks should have survived. Egypt, Babylon, these are powerful empires. But Israel's never been big. And they've been, you know, they've been disbanded everywhere. Why do you keep surviving? Because God keeps them. God protects them. They don't deserve it. Especially after what they've done to Christ. They don't deserve it. But that is the God we serve. Because one day, the remnant of the Jews will come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Savior. What a patient God. That is the outworking of providence throughout the history. For this reason, God tells his people, I will bring you back. Seventy years will pass. And as you multiply, I will protect you. I will make sure you multiply in a faraway land. And then what happens that 70 years later, according to God's timetable, and if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see Daniel praying for this. And he's praying, 70 years have gone by, why is nothing happening? And then you see this decree is issued by Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the decree out of nowhere. I now release all the Jews, whoever wants to go home, can go home. Where did that come from? Why would Cyrus do that 70 years later? Because the heart of a king is in the hand of God. And he determines which way it should go. The heart of the prime minister, the heart of the president, the heart of every ruler. God is sovereign and providentially working in the affairs of this world. And he will have the last say. No one else. How wonderful. How wonderful. So as divine providence, God moves mercifully toward a disobedient people by one, speaking to them. Have you ever not spoken to your spouse because they did something you didn't like? Have you ever done that? God does not give his people the silent treatment. He speaks. Secondly, by sending them prophets who pleaded with them that they would turn from their ways. We see God's providence and, and by God organizing the form of punishment she would receive as a nation so that God's people would not be totally destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. God providentially takes care of his people while in captivity in a faraway land. Takes care of them so they're protected. He gives them favor in the eyes of their captors. Look at Daniel. And now look at Nehemiah. They were slaves, and yet they obtained favor in the eyes of their captors. Causes people to prosper. The Jews prospered so much that if you look at the book of Esther, you'll see Haman saying, we have to kill all the Jews and take away everything they have. They're rich, and I don't understand why. These were Jews who lived in the Medo-Persian Empire. 
But God providentially, that's another book that speaks of God's providence wonderfully. God providentially makes sure that Haman eventually hangs on his gallows and the Jews are spared. So he causes them to prosper and they're protected while captives. And then finally, he causes her captors to eventually free them when God says, time to go home now. Seventy years have passed. I will keep my word. Now as Jeremiah reflects on the goodness of God and the ways of God and the mercy of God and the providence of God, he writes in his book called Lamentations. It's a short book. Far shorter than than the book of Jeremiah. By the way, I encourage you to read it. This is what he says in Lamentations chapter 3. And I'm reading it from the King James because it has a It renders it clearly. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Who's we? We the Jews. We the people of Judah. It's just because God is merciful. We deserve to be consumed. We deserve to be wiped off the slate. No longer to be here. But God is merciful. That's why we're not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a wonderful God. And if you don't know this God, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, this doctrine should give you, give you every reason to humble yourself before this holy God and believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior who took your sins, not because you're such a great person, but because He is merciful, He is good. He gave up his son so that we could be his people. And what he ordains in our lives, he does it for one sole purpose so that at the end he can present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That is God's providence at work in the life of every child of his. Let's praise him. Let's thank him for that. Father, we thank you for giving this amazing truth to us providence. There are so many glorious doctrines that are revealed in Scripture. This one, of course, is very special to us right now as we're studying it. I keep asking you that you would reveal more and more your providence to us, that we would be a grateful people as we reflect on this doctrine, that we would not be murmuring and complaining because things are not going as we would want them to be, that we would trust in you because of your providence. That we would be, Lord, always with an upward gaze and not with this inward gaze of morbidity, thinking, why are things not going the way I would like them to be? Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us how you take care of us and that you go way beyond what we could ever dream of. Because indeed, as Jeremiah says, great are your mercies and your faithfulness. We thank you. Thank you for today and for speaking to us and for causing us, Lord, to be here in your presence today. We bless you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.